Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, the one-stop shop podcast for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. As we continue with our collaboration with She the People, we are highlighting women from their 20 women of color to watch in 2020 list. These are all barrier-breaking women who are changing the political landscape this year and beyond. Helen Gim is a powerhouse. She is a former teacher, education activist, and the first Asian American woman elected to the Philadelphia City Council. Some of her accomplishments include ending a state takeover of the public schools, expanding renters' rights, and passing a law guaranteeing predictable schedules for retail, fast food, and hotel workers. For 2020, she is helping build a movement of transformative political change from the bottom up. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? We're hanging in there, you know, in the time of like massive crisis. One thing that I sometimes do is I like shout out women that I love. Oh, we love that on the BGG. So let's do it. So Grace Lee Boggs is an ancestor uh, who lived her life in Detroit, was a radical activist, you know, saw movements uh, pass just before her centennial, um, but has been a historic figure in local action and, you know, just being thoughtful and passionate about the world immediately around you, because sometimes you can actually change the broader world when you engage locally. So she's been my, for a long time, has been a guide star, lodestone, north star, however we talk about it um, in these times. So we need hope. So I want to talk a little bit about your background and how you got into politics. So your background is as a teacher, definitely sending the love to all of our teachers right now who are having to do virtual learning and distance learning. But one of the things that I have truly found is that teachers make amazing activists and amazing elected officials. So what made you really take the leap into politics? So I think one of the things that, I mean, you know, I didn't come into politics early in my life and, and I actually only came into it once it felt like there was so much organizing, particularly around the area that I've been active in, which was like public schools and education much later in my life. So I spent 20 years or so doing community organizing and, um, I was so lucky to come out of a radical group of badass Asian American women who have formed a incredible matriarchy at a small scrappy organization called Asian Americans United. And when I was looking for what to get involved in here in Philadelphia, someone said, you have to go to AAU, they're going to change the world. So I went to the little storefront in Chinatown and walked through the doors and I've been there and you know, for the last 20, 30 years, uh, many of them were teachers. They saw teaching and the work in the classroom as an extension of their political thinking and how to get and engage with community members through young people to see a multi-generational approach to things. And so from an early time period, I understood at, you know, the most real level what it meant for communities, uh, especially marginalized communities or communities of color and young people to have both visibility and voice in a moment. And to me, that is the most 
powerful thing that we can both teach ourselves, our young people, uh, following generations, uh, because we fundamentally believe that telling our stories can change the world. Mm-hmm. And totally with you 100% on storytelling. That's why the BGG exists, to tell the amazing stories of women like you. And I do want to pivot a little bit because you have this great background in social justice work, particularly standing up against discrimination. Currently in the age of COVID, we are seeing a ridiculous amount of discrimination against the AAPI community. What are some of the things that our listeners can do to support the AAPI community and call out this unjust discrimination? Well, one is to recognize it and take it seriously. Like I think a lot of people, when they hear harassment, um, you know, kind of shrug their shoulders, look the other way and say there are bigger things in play. And actually, you know, one of the things we've been pointing out is that president or other individuals peddle in untruths and xenophobia in order to deflect from incompetence or from the stealing that they're doing in terms of like taking a half a trillion dollars of that two trillion dollar relief package to go towards the biggest companies with absolutely no oversight. It's about recognizing that the scapegoating of immigrants, this idea that we're getting the virus from China when we're actually getting it from one another means that we don't take care of each other in the same ways, that we issue blame and scapegoating rather than focus in on the essential needs of public health of our essential workers or on black and brown communities that are suffering disproportionately in this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And it's making sure that like race and racial justice and racial attentiveness and awareness is bringing us closer together. It's not about sympathies or just othering uh, Asian Americans in this moment. It's recognizing that there is a purposeful attempt to blame AAPIs, um, to scapegoat other people, to cast blame so that others don't take a look at what's happening underneath their actual noses. Um, so first and foremost, take it seriously. Second, like engage, call it out when we see it. I'm always surprised. And even myself, like get surprised when these things come right into your face. You know, when people curse at you or spit at you right in your face, it's shocking and alarming. And a lot of people can't fathom that moment. And other external actors who are not experiencing the exact harassment can step in and make something, take a moment that is deeply shocking and unjust and make it better. Um, and then the last thing is, is that we've got to really focus in and pull together. And it's whether the racism is happening during COVID-19, whether it's the scapegoating of immigrants and sticking them in like for-profit private prison industries that are now um, pandemic centers for this disease, you know, we've really got to be hyper attentive to the fact that the xenophobia that's being spread is deliberate and purposeful, that people profit from it. Thank you for sharing that. I want to talk a little bit more about local progress. You are the national co-chair, and it is made up of all municipal officials. What's the power of local politics right now? You know, the the understanding is, is that this work the work of politics, the work of transforming our country is largely at the local level. When we take a look at the fact that 70% of Americans have little to no faith in Congress, um, we have to recognize that healing our politics has to begin in a much more trust building kind of effort. And I don't want to neutralize 
politics at the local level. For example, there have been some people who said, hey, look, there's there's no partisan politics in delivering trash or picking up, you know, making sure that your water is clean. And that is very true at some levels. But I think politics has to be radicalized at the local level. And what I've been inc- incredibly encouraged by is that there's so many new people, organizers and activists, it, recognizing that hey, if we want to change our criminal justice laws, the most important position we can take on right now is your district attorney's office. If you want to take on uh, educational injustice and the privatization of education, school boards have a huge role to play around all of that. And if we want to care about you know, housing protections, rental rights, uh, when the president or Congress are stalled out on immigration reform, we can establish a sanctuary city here in Philadelphia. We can establish an immigrant legal defense fund. We can establish a right to counsel to protect renters and landlord tenant court, you know, and I think these things have been incredibly powerful to demonstrate that local politics is actually a a vehicle for transformative change, especially when it's matched with our organizing communities. I come out of organizing communities, grassroots communities for change. Whether or not people in Congress understand who Asian Americans United is in, um, in Philadelphia, is really different than when city council here recognizes or hears that Asian Americans United is coming to visit them in city council. It makes a bigger difference. We're uh, one of the largest cities in the country, the sixth largest city in the nation. There are 1.6 million people within our boundaries and a a wider 5 million member um, regional economy that depends on Philadelphia. We are the poorest large city in the country. We're predominantly people of color, and we have a different way of doing politics here. And that should be evidenced at our local level. So here we're going to prioritize worker protections. We're going to prioritize housing as a human right. We're going to prioritize healthcare for all and a basic income that means something to people. We're not going to privatize our schools and shut them down like we did in the past. Um, we're fighting for educational justice. Uh, we're fighting to, uh, you know, to see real change in our policing and our institutions and to decarcerate as a central role in our economic prosperity and in our health. And I think those things translate, they mobilize, they activate at the local level in order for us to get the capacity to do the same thing at the national level. So to me, Transforming politics starts at home. And uh, for all your listeners who are out there who think that, you know, the only real politics is about a hierarchy that is about Congress and then your state and then your local. In fact, I find the opposite is true, that in fact, you know, the most powerful work that can be done right now is in our school boards, in our, you know, in our district attorney's office, in our sheriff's department in our voting rights and in our and in our city councils and our mayors. So inspired by so many people all over the country right now who are in the midst of this pandemic, issuing rent freezes, establishing rent control, um, talking about real change in terms of decarcerating and depopulating our prisons um, in the ways that they probably should have been done in the first place. Um, But we're really seeing that move at the local level much faster than we're seeing the ideas move uh, at the national level. Yes, all politics is local. 
you know, I'm in my professional career, I'm the president of Emerge. And what we've noticed is that in the absence of the leadership that we have from the man in the White House, it has been the state and local leaders who have been stepping up, but particularly our women leaders and our women of color leaders. They've been the ones who have been getting things done. So truly all politics is local. And you said something that I really would love for you to expand on is you talked about coming into politics later in your life. This is something I hear from women all the time when I'm encouraging them to run for office. They're like, oh, you know, I'm too old. That's for the young people. What advice do you have for those women who are saying that, but they still want to make change? Because like you did it and you're absolutely freaking killing it. So how do we get more Helens in office? The first thing is to recognize that what we are doing here in, you know, every single woman who's listening right now is proof that our lives and our experiences can never be interpreted through the lens of pundits and operatives and big party machines. Voters don't want a walking resume and they don't want a set of focus group home talking points. They want an authentic and real person that speaks to issues that come out of our communities. And I think what women understand is that every single day we get up and we go out and we fix the world. We fix the world for our families. We fix the world for our neighborhoods and our communities. We fix the world for our children and for our schools. And that this is politics. This is fundamentally what politics is about. It's about the energy, the experiences, and the womanhood, the femininity, the queerness that's got to lead a torn nation forward. And to me, women are built for this moment, and what comes next has to be up to us. We are here to kick the doors in because this country needs a major kick. And whether it's going to happen with combat boots, kitten heels, or red stilettos, it's going to happen from a badass woman standing up, speaking her truth, and saying that this country is going to change. Um, it's going to change for black and brown people and for immigrant people in this country. It's going to change for every little girl growing up right now. It's going to change for queer and trans uh, people, especially people of color, who are fighting just to stay alive in this moment. And it's... It is about all of us and our experiences matter more than ever. It's about making ourselves political and politically savvy so that we can take two minutes and tell a story so that we can go out and move rooms and then hallways and then audiences and then a city to change. And that kind of approach, I think, is what we have to get away from this idea that power is hierarchical. Power is local. And radical, racialized power for justice and transformative change must be local because that is where it's going to be truly, truly transformative. As you might have guessed from the many conversations with our guests here on the Brown Girls Guide, fundraising is no small task. It can be quite a challenge to raise sufficient funds to keep your campaign alive and well. When small dollar donors chip in and power campaigns, they are able to affect change in their communities and democratize power. That's why small dollar donors can make all the difference in a close race. ActBlue makes it easy for donors to make their voices heard. ActBlue is a fundraising platform and nonprofit organization that makes it easy to give and to make your voice heard. They help thousands of democratic campaigns, progressive organizations, and nonprofits build people-powered movements. Small dollar donors are more powerful than any mega donor. 
If you're a candidate or organization ready to build your grassroots fundraising program, go to actbluesetup.com. ActBlue's sponsorship of the Brown Girls Guide does not imply support for any candidate or committee. A large part of the country is social distancing at home right now. A way to stay healthy, focused, and energized is with fresh, delicious meals delivered straight to your door from Sakara. Sakara is a nutrition company that believes wellness begins with what you eat. All of Sakara's meals are 100% plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, and non-GMO. In addition to their delicious meals, Sakara also offers daily essentials like supplements and herbal teas to complete your wellness routine and support overall health and vitality. To boost immunity, try their best-selling daily probiotic blend or detox water drops with pure chlorophyll. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their order when they go to sakara.com BGG or enter BGG at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash B-G-G to get 20% off your order. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash B-G-G to get 20% off your order. Sakara dot com slash B-G-G. And I want to talk about some of the historic bills that you have passed. One deals with potential discrimination at Philly's youth-serving organizations, and it requires them to create policies protecting trans and non-binary youth and then display those policies on their website and inside their physical locations. What drove you to pass this bill? I've been working with uh, LGBTQ communities for a long time here in the city of Philadelphia. We helped establish like the first anti-harassment policies, anti-bullying policies at the school district of Philadelphia, for example. Um, But, you know, a lot of my work comes out of talking to young people. And um, actually, this one uh, is very personal. Certainly, it's been echoed in many places. But um, one of my close friends... uh, daughters who is non-binary and attends an all-girls high school here was told that she had to graduate with traditional dress, you know, like girls wear white dresses and boys wear suits. And nothing was going to change that. And that's the way things were going to be fixed. And so we did a lot to change graduation policies throughout the school district. But, you know, obviously, like, as these conversations grow and expand and you work with young people, we have been working with young people around housing and homelessness issues. We've been working with young people to access resources and services. And they were very clear that a lot of organizations and nonprofits and youth serving groups do not have any affirmative policies that deal with trans and non-binary gender non-conforming youth. So we passed a pretty significant expansion of our non-discrimination law to ensure that all youth serving organizations here in the city of Philadelphia have to have, you know, have to have affirmative policies around trans and gender non-conforming youth. Because it it matters so much uh, to uh, enable people to participate and because it's fundamental to assuring that you are truly accessible to the broader public. That is so great. And thank you for that work. And I want to talk, too, about two bills that you helped pass that deal with worker protection laws, something that is very much in the forefront of the news at the time. So one deals with guaranteeing two weeks advance notice of schedules for the 130,000 hourly workers. 
in the city. And you also co-sponsored the Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. We've talked a lot on the podcast about domestic workers, and this will provide labor protections to the city's 16,000 nannies, housekeepers, and caretakers. Tell us more about these bills and why they are so important, especially in times like now. It's a sad story of the American economy that you can talk about prosperity by defining it through Wall Street and corporate actors and a ticker tape um, that runs across the bottom of a screen on, you know, on uh, CNBC or something. And so, you know, it's become really clear that the stratification of the American economy has a lot to do with the fact that we've basically abandoned job quality. We've been in pursuit of job quantity, um, and we have completely neglected the quality of jobs uh, that exist. And those are populated by Black, Brown, immigrant folks, especially women, and young people as well. And they are largely cut out of protections. Many of them are hourly workers. They're not on salary. Many of them are classified as independent contractors, um, part of the gig economy. And so they don't even you know, pay into any kind of protective system. So we would love to see things happen at the congressional level, at the federal level, at the state level, anything to protect people who are the majority of workers here in the city of Philadelphia. Major cities like Philadelphia rely on a service economy. They are the vast majority of jobs that populate our city and they are poor paying. They don't have protections. So we decided to do it at the local level. And this is where um, groups like Local Progress and other organizations, Good Jobs First, Center for Popular Democracy, and others have been very, Policy Link, for example, have been very active in seeing local laws advance labor protections that are stagnant. Um, and we've been I've been proud to lead the advanced scheduling law. We call it Fair Work Week here in Philadelphia. It guarantees two weeks advance notice of schedule. And I think to some people it's hard to imagine that, you know, this law would be necessary. But the reality is is that some 80% of part-time hourly workers here in Philadelphia do not have a regular daytime work schedule. So they don't know when they're working day to day, week to week necessarily, which means they can't predict their weekly income and thus can't predict their rent. We established um, a basic advance notice law. Similarly, we have no protections for domestic workers. They are completely cut out of state laws uh, that govern this area. I hope any of our fellow elected officials that are listening will listen to Helen and do the same thing at the local level. And I really love what you just said. And when it comes to city council meetings, county commission meetings, we know a lot of people don't pay attention to them. They won't attend. What advice do you have for the people listening who want to make the change that you just talked about, who want to see themselves centered, how should they be reaching out to their city council people, their county commissioners, all of their local elected officials? Because we know not everyone's going to be like you when they're really out in the community doing work. How do they get their attention so that they can get these types of bills passed in their cities? Yeah. So the first thing I always say is, you know, no. Uh, know what you want and know who are the people around you. Um, It's less, I think, you know, there's been ideas about power and how you move things at center and hyper 
celebrity kinds of notions about individuals who are charismatic and on TV all the time. And to me, that's not actually how things change. Things change when people move towards collective action, um, hooking up with organizations and groups that are dedicated and good at it, and then um, partnering with uh, people within your council bodies or school boards or you know, uh, active district attorneys or your defenders association that are good and smart and people of integrity and strategic to move things towards change. You know, it's the key is, is that local politics is hyper-local. I mean, it's not hard to get to. Your city hall is blocks away. Um, They meet every week. You know, you can kind of grab them in the hallways. You can pick up the phone and make a call. I'm grateful for groups like Emerge. I'm grateful for local progress. Um, I'm grateful for organizations and groups that are out there transforming and mobilizing people from activism to organizing seeing like the most unlikely people, the most typically unlikely people um, to go into politics and then just to kick that door in and make the change that this that we need to see. Ooh, so inspiring. Like, y'all, if you're not interested in running for office after that, just (laughs) like Helen said, we need everybody. And we started this interview with you lifting up one of your ancestors, a great woman. And on the She the People list, everyone got to have their plus one. So tell us about your plus one, Kendra Brooks. So Kendra um, Brooks is the first... Um, independent candidate in the history of council, uh, city politics uh, to win a seat on city council. She won in November of 2019 an at-large seat. Um, it's traditionally, you know, we're a democratic city by a measure of seven to one. And for a long time, there have been discussions about two seats that are at-large on city council that are reserved for a non-majority party. Typically, it's been seated to a uh, to our GOP, our local GOP. They are, it would be maybe one thing if they embrace like a wide swath of GOP politics, but you know, they've been largely reflective. I've been on the trail with them in November and they're largely reflective of the existing G- extremist GOP in our in our national politics. And so we knew that we had a shot to really mobilize a base and to have them think differently Um about the third party seat, about this, you know, non-majority seat on city council. So she ran a historic campaign, but we, Kendra and I, and she won, she won by historic margins. It was incredibly exciting and she made history. And the most exciting thing that I love about Kendra is that we met on the front lines of fighting for our schools. Um, She was a a single mom with four daughters. Um, Her school is going to be taken over, going to be closed down, converted to a charter school. And the vote was going to be left to the parents there. She was the president of her school advisory council. And she was thus in charge of this, you know, crazy process. And she mobilized her community by a two to one vote to remain a public school. And from there, uh, she only grew. She went and did national work um, with Center for Popular Democracy, uh, mobilizing the Federal Reserve Board to diversify its board and be more reflective of the communities that they represent. I chose her to be um, on the school board nominating panel to pick our first school board in many years. Um, 
and uh, and of course, uh, when it came to the 2019 municipal elections, it was a perfect fit. You know, we were it was wonderful to be in the room to announce uh, the launch of her campaign, but it was even more powerful to be in an even bigger room to celebrate her victory. And since she's come on along with uh, some other council members um, who've been really engaged and exciting, we're moving forward that big platform on housing and public schools and racial justice on our young people and on communities and seeing black, brown and immigrant women be at the forefront of it. And it's, you know, it's, it's energizing and joyful. It's hard work, of course. It's terrifying in many ways because we're at this moment in history where, you know, we we know the world is going to change after this. Like all of us are hopefully hunkered down in safe places with families that we love and who we can care for. But um, but we know that no matter what, after all of this, um, the world is going to change. Our economy is going to change, and it is going to be a fight to ensure that we change towards justice, that we create a more equitable and more just world. And I feel confident that with Kendra by my side on city council, we have that much more opportunity to do something better than we did yesterday. So it's been hopeful. That is so great. This has been just such a wonderful interview, Helen. Just hearing everything from your background as a teacher, encouraging women to run for office, to become an activist, to really start to lobby their elected officials. But I have to close it out with our signature question. What advice do you have for all the brown girls out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? Um, I would say when they go low, we go local. And that means get involved in the work that makes you powerful. Get involved in the work that gives you voice and leadership. Um, Don't define politics just by who gets to hold a seat, who's got the title and the perceived power or money. Define politics by your own power and, um, you know, get, get local, get active, change the world. That is so great. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for everything that you do. Oh, thank you, Ashanti. Thanks for your tremendous work, too, with Emerge. And I'm grateful for your work and your vision, too. Oh, I thank you. Thank you so much. If you have a moment, please take the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website, www.thebgguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The BG Guide. The BGG Podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, Brown Girls. Hey, listeners. Mother's Day is around the corner. Are you looking for a unique way to tell the mother in your life how much she means to you? Never fear, WMN has you covered. Forgo the classic gifts and purchase a customized episode of Encyclopedia Womanica starring mom. Head to wondermedianetwork.com and fill out a few questions. For just $100, we'll make a special podcast episode all about your mom that will no doubt be a big hit this Mother's Day. All submissions are due by May 6th, 
and will be delivered on Mother's Day, May 10th. For more information, visit wondermedianetwork.com.